All right, today we're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 26. We're we're looking and thinking about the Lord's Supper. Before we actually do this, uh, let me just mention again to you one of the core activities of the local church. According to Acts 2, verse 42, one of those core activities, the four core activities of the local church, is the ordinances. Not just the apostles' teaching or doctrine, not just fellowship, not just prayer, but also breaking of bread. So we believe in two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. These are one of the four core activities of the local church. It's an important, an important issue. In fact, at one point in time, it was so important that people were dying over this issue. In fact, in England, from 1555 to 1558, uh, that was during the reign of, she was nicknamed Bloody Queen Mary, uh, that's not a swear word, it's just that's what they called her because there were 288 Protestant reformers that were burnt at the stake. 288 under her reign died. Of these, you can see one of them here on the screen. Uh, one of them was an archbishop, Thomas Cranmer. Four of them were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 of them were women, and four were children. Yeah, she even killed children. Burn them at the stake. They included men like John Rogers, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Robert Farrar, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, John Philpot, and Thomas Cranmer. You may have heard of Thomas Cranmer. He was archbishop. You say, why were they burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic queen? She was Roman Catholic. Why? There was one central issue, one central issue. It was the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The meaning of the Lord's Supper. In fact, here are the words of John Charles Ryle, otherwise called often J.C. Ryle. He explains this. It's on the screen for you here. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were real? That is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced. Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. End quote. That was the central issue. Lord's Supper. Now, I mentioned these martyrdoms to show that there was once a time in church history when the Lord's Supper carried meaning. It carried significant meaning. It was very important. In fact, it was so important for some it was worth dying for, and for some others it was worth killing for. That's how important the issue was. I think, frankly, today we, we take it far too lightly, far too lightly. I think it would probably do us some good in New Zealand to have some people dying over these type of issues. It would really cause us to think, what do we really believe, right? 
if government came in here and said, okay, do you believe that the actual body of Christ becomes this right here, the bread and the juice in front of me, do you believe that or not? We're going to burn you at the stake if you don't believe that. How many of you would be willing to be burned at the stake over that belief? Do you really believe that? Well, that's the issue here. So I want to look at the biblical account of the Lord's Supper. The ordinance called the Lord's Supper, or some also call it communion, was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he did it at the conclusion of his last supper, there in the upper room, not long before Jesus himself was crucified. He was there with his disciples on that particular night that he was betrayed. And the account is, is here in Matthew chapter 26, the first account of this being in our New Testament. And uh, I want us to look at this together. Matthew 26. Uh, we're not going to look at it in great detail, but we do want to read it together. Matthew 26, verse 26. Look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The supper was observed by the churches in the New Testament. So this ordinance that Jesus started was carried on even after Jesus' death. For example, uh, we see it mentioned in one of the four core activities of the local church in Acts 2.42. that says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Breaking of bread there is referring to the ordinance. In Acts chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 6 and 7, it says, We came to them at Troas, that's Paul t- talking about Paul and the others, they came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now the point of that, I'm trying to show you that the early church in that first century was carrying on this ordinance that Christ had instituted there in the upper room. It wasn't just a one-off activity. In fact, uh, it's a continuous action. When Jesus says to remember in the Greek language, it's continuous, which clearly shows us it's somewhere to do until he comes. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's some rhetorical questions there in that passage. The obvious answer is, of course. Yes, we do partake. in Jesus Christ being that, that one bread. Why only two ordinances, though? Okay. Uh, I've had people ask me this. I know there are some other churches and religious groups who think there are more than two ordinances. 
Um, for example, why, why, don't we, uh, why do we not wash each other's feet on Sunday? Do you realize there are some groups who believe that's an ordinance of the church? I know some of you might think that's a bit strange. Uh, you, you wouldn't want to wash someone else's smelly feet, and I don't blame you, but, but you need to have a biblical reason for not wanting to do that, not just because you know, their feet are smelly. That's not a good enough reason. Right? You need to have a Bible reason for not doing that. There are some people who firmly believe that you should wash your fellow believer's feet when you come together. And they base that on, well, that's what Christ did before the Lord's Supper. He washed his disciples' feet. But why don't we do that? Why don't you do that? Why are there only two ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism? Well, there are three criteria that um, uh, <clears throat> many of us use and try, as, as we've thought about these things and try to determine well, what, what are the ordinances that Christ wants us to do? And by ordinance, I mean this is something that Christ has ordained for the church to do. Well, here's the three criteria. Number one, it has to be found in the Gospels. And, and by the Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You will find the, the Lord's Supper and baptism mentioned there. Number two, it was practiced in the book of Acts. We just read some examples of that. So you see the church carrying this on. They believed it was important. They believed it was an ordinance of the church. But it also needs to be, uh, there, there needs to be instruction for its observance given in the epistles. And by the epistles, I mean the letters to the churches and church leaders. And the epistles would be going from Romans, going all the way to 3 John, Jude. Right? So you'll see various examples of the instruction given. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, the Baptists believe the Lord's Supper, along with baptism, are the only two ordinances of the church. In fact, that's one of the Baptist distinctives. Not everybody believes that. That's why it's a distinctive. So, when you take the, that three criteria there, and you, you use that as your filter, and you run everything through that, you're going to find that, for example, washing feet doesn't match the criteria. And, and there's other things that some people believe as well. You run those things through the filter, they, they don't come out the other side. The only thing that comes out the other side of the filter is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, that's why we only have two ordinances in our church, and many other churches as well. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper has a purpose, but do you, do you ever wonder, why, why am I doing this? I mean, other than the fact that, uh, you know, it's just something we've always done. <laughs> is there a reason for this? The meaning or the purpose of the Lord's Supper is contained in all of the records of its inception. It's uh, fully explained by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, again, uh, I do want you to look at that passage, even though we read it earlier. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, and then we'll, we'll make some comments about this as we go through. 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. 
All right, let's just read uh, a few verses, not the whole passage. 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Hopefully you've noticed a few purposes for the Lord's Supper there. Well, these verses suggest four purposes for the Lord's Supper, in fact. Uh, Number one, the Lord's Supper is a reflection. It's a reflection. Try to think of it as a mirror, right? You, You look in the mirror when you're fixing your hair or whatever you might be doing, you uh, putting makeup on or these sort of things, the, the mirror is reflecting you. You may not like that reflection all of the time. I understand that. <laughs> I often don't like what I see either, so I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. But it's helpful to, to see. Imagine trying to do stuff without that reflection, that mirror. Well, the Lord's Supper is a reflection. And so when a believer partakes of the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper, there's to be reflection but in this case, you're not to reflect on yourself so much. Yes, you do need to, we are told to examine ourselves, verse 28. But the reflection is to be looking at what Christ did at Calvary when Christ died on the cross. Uh, when he gave his body and he shed his blood to take away sin. We're, we're to be reflecting on that, thinking on that. Well, there's many scriptures that back this up. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake, He, that's referring to God the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. We're to reflect on that. And, and, and with that comes great application, great relevance for you and for me. You need to think about those things, not just, by the way, not just during the Lord's Supper, but we're to continually remember these things. By his wounds you have been healed. But number two, the Lord's Supper is also a recognition. It's a recognition. Not only is it a reflection, it's a recognition. When when you take the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer, you should recognize that what Christ did was necessary because of your sin. You need to to think that, hey, it's, it's my sin that put the nails through Christ's wrist. It's my sin that put the nail in Christ's feet. It's my sin that placed that crown of thorns on his head and the spear through his side. It was my sin that put Christ there. It certainly wasn't Christ's sin because he's sinless. Christ didn't die because he was dying for his sin. He died for your sin. And you need to take that personally. 
So it's a recognition of personal sinfulness and unworthiness. So my friends, we are, and the Bible's clear on this, the Bible's so clear. We are so helpless, we are so hopeless, that only the intervention of Christ can save us. Without him, we, we have no hope. In fact, 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why one of the reasons he came is to save sinners. So the Lord's Supper is a recognition of that. Number three, number three, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. It's a celebration. We should come together to celebrate the love of Christ. That's one of, the, one of the things we need to be thinking about as we've looked at this passage here. We're celebrating the love of Christ. And, and, and how is that love evidence? He gave his body and his blood for you. Willingly gave it. This love is at the heart of Christ's death on the cross. We, we know this. Scripture says it. In places like Romans 5.8... God shows His love for us. How? How do we know God shows His love for us? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, in John chapter 10, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 15, verse 13, again, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You understand that? There's no greater example of love. Lest you doubt the love of God and the love of Jesus for you, my friends, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Don't ever doubt that. You want to drive fear away? 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. If you have fear, it's because you don't understand love. That's, that's our problem. So the Lord's Supper is a celebration of this great love, which was evidence for you and for me. But the Lord's Supper is also an anticipation. It's an anticipation It's not just, if you will, it's not just looking to the past, but the Lord's Supper is also looking to the future. In fact, in verse 26, it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what are you proclaiming? What does it say? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. So it's also looking for something that's yet to come. It's an anticipation of the Lord's return. It's a reminding believers that Christ is coming again. He is, my friends. He is coming again. He said He would. He says He is. And He is. I don't know about you. I hope, I hope you can agree with this. I, I would love for the next supper to actually be with the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's alive. He is coming again. Number five, the Lord's Supper. We need to think of this negatively here. I've underlined the not there for you. The Lord's Supper is not a means of forgiveness. 
Okay, we don't we don't partake of this as somehow it's 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 not a sacrament or a penance. It's not something that I do because I want to be forgiven of my sins. Okay, there are people who believe that. That's heresy. That would that would be a work. That would be directly contradicting what the Bible says. Now, Baptists and many others reject the Catholic belief that partaking of the Lord's Supper imparts forgiveness. You don't, you don't do this because you want to be forgiven of sins. It's only symbolic. It's picturing something. Just, just like baptism pictures, hopefully, what Christ has done in your life. You're you're buried in Christ. You're raised to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is picturing, salvation. Well, Lord's Supper is just another picture of what Christ has already accomplished. He died. He gave His life, His body, and His blood for you. You ask, what does provide forgiveness? What provides forgiveness? Well, it's not the physical partaking of these elements, the bread and the juice. That doesn't provide forgiveness. It is claiming what it's supposed to be picturing. What provides forgiveness is Christ. That's not Christ. <laughs> the bread and the juice is not Christ. Our, our faith, our trust, and our belief is supposed to be in Christ alone, not in something we do. Of course, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we came here on Sunday and partook of the bread and the juice, thinking that somehow this is going to forgive my sin, then you would boast. It's something you could do. It's a work. But Ephesians 2 says that salvation doesn't come by works. So... So, Lord's Supper would be included in that work. Baptism would be included in works. Right? The Bible says it's clear. You are not saved by your works. It's a gift of God. It's through grace. It's, sorry, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Well, not everybody believes that, sadly. Uh, there, let me give you some comparisons of the Lord's Supper Here's what the Baptists believe, at least I hope all Baptists believe this. I believe this, that the bread and the juice of the Lord's Supper are symbolic of Christ's body and blood. It's, it's, it's a symbol. These are just elements. It's symbolic, showing what Christ has done. Now, uh, throughout the many centuries, here's what the Catholics believe, and I'm not making this up, Okay. Uh, this actually comes from the St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism, which is uh, coming from the Catholic Book Publishing Company. Right? Here's what they say. Catholics believe these elements are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's often been called transubstantiation. So as the, the priest or the bishop or who, whoever's doing the Mass says the words, these, the, the bread and the juice, actually becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Literally. That's what they believe. And so that, it's, that was an important issue that many people died over and people were willing to kill other people for. 
Well, here's what the, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says. A very good statement here on the Lord's Supper. Quote, In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor is there any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin. There is only a memorial of that one offering up of Christ by himself upon the cross once for all. The memorial being accompanied by a spiritual oblation or sacrifice of all possible praise to God for Calvary. Therefore, the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, being injurious or dangerous to Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. End quote. Well, I praise God for the Reformation, but I hope you realize that not ever everything that comes out of the Reformation is biblical. Uh, I praise God for Martin Luther, but here's one thing where I have to disagree with Martin Luther. Here's what the Lutherans believe. This is coming from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says this, Lutherans believe that the presence of Christ's body and blood are contained in the sacred elements. A little different. That's called consubstantiation. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther did not believe that the, the bread and the juice became Christ's body, but, but somehow Christ was mystically present during that process of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Uh, he, he kind of took it a, a, a step up, step between, if you will, what typically Baptists believe in Catholics. He was kind of somewhere between there. So those are some of the major comparisons of the Lord's Supper. Of course, we hold to the fact that we believe the bread and the juice are symbolic of Christ's body and blood. Now, where does the authority for the Lord's Supper come from? Where does it come from? I believe the authority, and I believe the Bible teaches the authority resides within the local church. Now, I'll back that up with Scripture here in a moment, but... Let me just make the statement and throw it out there for you to dwell upon. I believe the authority resides in the local church. Now this position differs from some who think or, or believe that the Lord's Supper can be celebrated any time, anywhere, any place, by anybody who just desires to celebrate it. Uh, in fact, you know, some, Christians, some Christian groups, you know, they'll have, you know, they have a junior camp, maybe during school holidays or whatever, and... Uh, you know, the junior camp has, has Lord's Supper together, or uh, maybe they just do it at the hospital or in someone's home, or, you know, they do it out in the bush, or, you know, whatever. You know, there's all kinds of various beliefs on that. Do it just whenever, anytime, anywhere, by anyone. Well, let me show you from Scripture why I don't think that's appropriate, and I don't think that should be the case. Number one... The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus Christ with those he first placed in the church. It was instituted by, by Christ with the disciples. He established, uh, or the Lord established uh, the Lord's Supper there. And remember in the upper room, that last meal that he had with the apostles in Matthew chapter 26, which we read earlier. Uh, the apostles are the persons who first constituted the church. They're the 
They're the, the Bible calls them the foundation, if you will, of the church, Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, some of the, the words that we kind of quickly went over in Matthew 26 are actually commands. The words take, eat, and drink are not options. Those are commands. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, in Matthew 26, he, that is a continuous command. In the Greek language, it's present tense. We're supposed to continually do this until he comes. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 shows that uh, God has set some in the church, and it specifically says there, first, apostles. The apostles were first placed in the church by Christ himself. That's what Christ did. He's, the, he's of course, the head of the church. He's the one who instituted this with his apostles. Number two, it was practiced by local churches. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper was practiced by local churches. Uh, in the book of Acts and in Corinthians, there are several examples of this. Let me just quickly mention some. In Acts chapter 2, uh, the Lord's Supper was conducted there by the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we read in verse 42, for example, one of the four core activities of the local church was the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 20, we read earlier, it was part of the services of the church at Troas. 1 Corinthians 10, it was practiced by the church at Corinth. Those are just a few biblical examples of specific local churches having the authority to carry on what Christ started there in the upper room. And number three, it is to be controlled by local churches. The church at Corinth, by the way, was commanded to exercise discipline over members of the church. The entire fifth chapter, in fact, of 1 Corinthians deals with that particular subject. There was someone who was, uh, shouldn't have been a part of the church, and they were boasting, in fact, and Paul said, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to, to deal with this man's sin. And their discipline was to extend even to the observance of the Lord's Supper. The man should not be partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's only for believers. The church was to forbid the unrepentant one, from partaking. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 says, not even to eat with such a one. The context being dealing with the unrepentant person's sin. And that's the context when Paul says, you don't even eat with that man. Don't even eat with him. And he's referring to the Lord's Supper there. He wasn't saying, you know, don't take the guy, don't, don't take the guy out to a cafe. That's, no, that's not what he was saying. You don't partake in the Lord's Supper with him. That's the context. And Paul begins his chapter of instruction on celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So, so this chapter which we often read during Lord's Supper, on the Lord's Supper, notice how in the context how Paul begins. He, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So they're carrying on Christ's tradition. So we conclude from these examples and instruction here that 
the Lord's uh, or the local church is the authority for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Individual believers don't have the right to just do whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, however they want to do it. They don't have that right. They don't have that authority. Local church has that authority. So the local church should be overseeing this, keeping, keeping it and, and, and disciplining those who need to be disciplined, being involved in the whole participating of the Lord's Supper. That's your responsibility. Let's talk about the admission to the Lord's Supper. Who, who, who should be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper? You've heard me say the three qualifications that's in our church constitution. Uh, why, why do we have qualifications for the Lord's Supper? Why not, just, why not just let everybody partake? Why have qualifications? Well, let's, let's think about admission to the Lord's Supper here. Okay? The instructions given regarding the celebration of this particular ordinance suggest four requirements for a person to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We have three mentioned in the church constitution, but let me mention four here, okay? Number one, you need to be a believer. And and by believer, I mean one who's trusting for their forgiveness of sins and the penalty of sin to be taken care of by Christ alone. Christ did that. So the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ. Um, It's interesting to me that Christ had Judas leave before they partook of the Lord's Supper, I don't believe Judas was a Christian. Jesus had him leave before they did that. So I think that that's, um, you know, it's not a command, it's, it's, it's descriptive, but uh, I think that's important that only believers participate in the Supper together. 1 Corinthians ten seventeen describes those who participate It says, for we are all partakers of that one bread. That one bread being Christ. Okay? You need to be a partaker of Jesus Christ. The living bread, the Bible calls him. If you're not a partaker of him, if you're not one with him, then you shouldn't be partaking in the Lord's Supper either. Only those who are Christians should participate. Number two, you must be scripturally baptized. Uh... I think the Bible makes this clear that uh, particularly when you read the book of Acts, it, it, it says those who believed were baptized. There's a particular order of events taking place there, right? Uh, nowhere do you see in Scripture, nowhere does the Bible clearly say that infants were baptized. Sometimes people infer that into the passage, but the passage doesn't explicitly state that. So it's important, I think, we be scripturally baptized in order to partake. Um, Acts 2, 41 and 42 specifically shows that baptism preceded the breaking of the bread and, that, and then the baptism took place after salvation. So if baptism is supposed to take place after salvation, that's the other ordinance, then the second ordinance of Lord's Supper should also partake be partaking place after salvation. Number three, you must have a lifestyle or a walk that adorns the gospel of God. You need to adorn the gospel of God. You you find that throughout the epistles, that we are to walk in this way, walk being this lifestyle that is to adorn the gospel of God. You are to accurately represent Jesus Christ. 
be an accurate representation. Paul there says, remember, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. So, I mean, that's why in our passage in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, verse 27, we're not to eat and eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. If you do, it says there, you're going to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, We're to take that seriously. Do not do it in an unworthy manner, which is why we have that qualification. Okay, You, you should not come in and uh, be living in unrepentant sin and think, hey, I'm just going to do it anyway. No, you don't have that right. You need to have a lifestyle or a walk that adorns the gospel of God. Number four, you must make self-examination. We just read that, that there in verse 28. A person is to examine himself, and then you can eat and drink of the cup. Remember, this is written to a specific local church, the church at Corinth. So Paul's advising the the, the, the members there in Corinth of this local church to examine themselves. The word examine in the Greek language is a command. It's not an option. You can't say, well, you know, I don't, I don't feel like doing that. No. You must do this, Paul's saying. In fact, it's a present imperative active verb. Present tells you it's continuous. The imperative shows you it's command. And the active shows you it's something that you have to do. That's what that tells us. So this examination should include at least four things. Number one, examination should include your present relationship to Christ. Are you saved, in other words? Are you a Christian? Are you really in Christ? Or are you just one who professes salvation in Christ? No, are you really in Christ? And number two... You, you, the examination should include your present fellowship with Christ. Okay? That, that fellowship... Okay, let me explain it this way, okay? Relationship takes place at the moment of salvation. You are adopted into God's family. You become one of His children. Positionally, that never changes. Okay? Once you're adopted, you're always one of God's children. The relationship will never change. But our fellowship can. Our fellowship can change. For example, my own daughter will always be my daughter. Right? She will always be my daughter. That is her position in my family. The relationship won't change. But based on what she does or doesn't do, our fellowship can be hindered. Right? Right? If, if my daughter for example, is abusing my wife or another one of my children or lives in rebellion, we've got a problem, a big problem. Our fellowship is hindered. She can't continue to go on her merry way thinking that, oh, yeah, my daddy loves me, you know, he's, yeah, I'm always going to be his daughter, that's never going to change, and just go doing what, do whatever she wants to do and think that there, there's, there's, no, there's no barrier there. She shouldn't think that way. Guess what? We shouldn't think that we can do whatever we want with God and expect 
our fellowship to be good with him. That's not the case. So we need to examine our present fellowship with Christ. Number three, we also need to look at our relationship with other believers. Look at our relationship with other believers. In fact, the Bible, remember Jesus said, if you, know, if you have something against another person, leave your, leave your sacrifice at the altar. You go to that person. You, you get right with that person before you, you, you have your sacrifice. Right? That's what Jesus said. So we need to deal with our relationship with other believers. But number four, examine your attitude about the supper and your manner of participation in the supper. We can have a wrong attitude. We, we could do it in, a, in the wrong way or wrong manner. And then after self-examination, number one, sins need to be confessed. You, know, you need to pray, as the psalmist did, that God would open your eyes See if there's any wicked way in me, the psalmist said. You need to pray that way. And when God does show you your sin, you need to confess that sin. And number two, you need to make your attitudes uh, get those right. Okay, Because it's not just what we do or don't do that can be an issue, but sometimes our very attitudes, what, the way we're thinking about something can be wrong as well. And then corrections need to be made. Self-examination should include those things as a bare minimum. So after these qualifications are met and self-examination is complete, then, then you can partake in the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful time of celebration and recognition, remembrance, all those things. And uh, you're welcome to partake, and you should partake. You should look forward to this time. Well, I want to end today by just saying something together because one of the things that, that I love about the Lord's Supper is, is it's, it's something that unifies us. It's a time when we're, we're together and, and it's, it's a corporate thing. It's meant to be a corporate thing. It's, it's something that we, we share with one another, okay? Uh, and, and so I think it's appropriate that, that we say this together, okay? So you just, uh, like, like we do with our verses sometimes, just let's say this together, okay? Here we go. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread, signifying Christ's body given for His people, and drink the cup of the Lord, signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord and thus proclaim His death until he comes. Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually, in that by faith they are nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death and thus grow in grace. End quote. Excellent. Well, I hope that uh, you find that helpful in understanding a little bit of why we do what we do, why. Why are there only two ordinances? Who has the authority to do this? Do you have the right to just go and do it as you wish whenever you want? There's, these are important issues, okay? Ordinances, things Christ has ordained. He's instituted these things. Uh, it's one of the four core activities of the church. These, it needs to be one of these important things to us. One of the reasons why we congregate together. Why we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
May God help us to understand these things and to be worthy of Him.